What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Stones, the year is 2021, and what we have is a Mick Jagger uh, song collaboration with Dave Grohl about COVID versus a Peter Jackson three-part documentary about the Beatles. Ryan, who you got? Uh, somehow, I've, I once again drafted the Rolling Stones. Uh, <laughs> so, no. <laughs> um, happy to have your host for this evening, the Rolling Stones. Um <laughs> I'm super happy to be back and doing this. We had said at the the, the at tail run of our podcast that we were going to come back on and record one more episode uh, when when this Get Back documentary came out. At the time, uh, we were under the impression it was going to be a movie that was going to be in movie theaters that we could go and consume together. And then um, found out probably, I think, last week that all told the three-part documentary was nearly eight hours long. Yeah. And so quickly became apparent that that was not going to be realistic the weekend after Thanksgiving for us to spend eight hours together. No, no. And I can't remember. I can't remember if this was on podcast or just us talking, but we there was the like period when it was expanding from being like a two hour documentary to something big like this and something streaming and all that. That I think we I know I I think we were both sort of against it. It's like, why does everything have to be serialized like this or like. I know, I, I know I was, and I feel that way about most things. Like we don't need everything to be this kind of drawn out thing like that. And I was hundred percent wrong about this Beatles documentary. Like I'd, I'd have taken all of it. You know, I think if we can just dive straight into it and our impressions as a, as a Beatles fan, as a, a music fan, and as a musician, I will definitely take all of it. I still feel the same way as far as like, guys can we edit things and make them like i mean it's a peter jackson problem <laughs> he's he's known for making these overlong things but it's it's both the beauty and like a deeply flawed part of this whole documentary was it's like jesus christ this is so long 
It's yeah. I mean, it's endless. It's basically just placing you in the room and you're just in the room and you know what else is long recording and writing a record. Like that's like, it's commonly understood that like, it's not just some glamorous rock star thing. There's a bunch of minutiae involved in all of that. And you're just kind of in there for that real quick before we get fully, fully into get back. I just want to note that it's kind of funny that in the year 2021, when we took this thing year by year, there like weirdly was a Beatles versus Stones moment of McCartney calling the, the Rolling Stones a like blues rock bar cover band. I just love that. I just love that there was like <laughs> there was some organic Beatles versus Stones energy in this. Yeah, it's, it's a timeless conversation. Um, and what I, what I wanted to say about you know, the, the length of the documentary is as I was watching it, I was thinking this is so comprehensive as far as you getting to sort of see the Beatles in action and also like see so many kind of different emotions kind of float across their faces. And I was like, it's so comprehensive that you get to see what it's like when the Beatles are bored. Like, yeah, yeah not totally compelling to watch, uh, you know, other people be bored, but there is something very interesting about, okay, we're even going to show you them being bored. Yeah, it's true. That's like, in every scenario, the boring stuff is what you cut and you keep the interesting stuff. But in this, it was all of it. And yeah, I just, so we should say like, we're not, there's no like full on outline design for this, but we all watched it in three nights. That's how everyone watched this documentary. And so we'll kind of generally just like flow through them and just have this conversation. But like kind of going into that, I, I had this feeling at some point, like, I figured, okay, I'm going to watch this documentary and I'm going to know a little bit more about the Beatles and each individual member. But kind of like along the lines of what you just described with seeing them bored, seeing them grumpy, seeing them excited, all that, I kind of almost feel like I didn't know them really at all. I knew like very flattened, caricatured versions of like John Lennon, Paul McCartney, uh, all of them. Like, you know, we all have our sort of flattened out simple versions of them. And weirdly, I don't feel like I just know slightly more. I feel like I know like exponentially more and really kind of only know them now a little bit. Is that overstated or I don't know. I don't think it's overstated. I think that's interesting that you say that because I don't know if this is a misconception on my part or an arrogance. My experience watching it was to feel like, oh, I know these people better than I thought I did as far as there was so many sort of moments and different things that happened that really there were very few moments where I was like, well, that's out of character for Ringo or like, Oh, I can't believe John is acting that way. And it it, just to get to a specific part of the documentary, which I think we can say pretty clearly, like we're going to be jumping all around this. We're not going to really go part by part because it is too much stuff going on to really like do a linear sort of look at it. But there's the scene when John is describing his meeting with Alan Klein to, yeah. to George. And he says like, you know, he, he knows everything about us. It's like, he already knows us. And I, when I was watching that part, I was like, that's how I feel. Yeah. Like, yeah. You're, you're actually like weirdly that is in line with what I'm saying before. I guess what it like is, is that like, yeah, they're, they're acting in the way that I kind of understand them to be, but like with so much more nuance and like if you if what you think about is like let it be is kind of like that the end of the Beatles and the fracturing and everything like that 
You see so much love for each other in all mm-hmm. of this. It is not some simple conflict end, you know? There is so much like harmony and beautiful. And even in the moments of disagreement, there's like respect and care. I, I love seeing that. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I think that you hit the nail on the head as far as uh, I think individually, they all fit into like their actions fit into my preconceived notions. And let's be clear that we have you know, no real window into what was sort of being said and going on behind closed doors and and not in front of the camera. And it's pretty, you know, some of the parts that they leave in intentionally to make it clear that they're aware of the fact that they're on camera at all times and are sort of adjusting their behavior accordingly. But all of that being said, I think it's very clear that my and probably a lot of people's preconceived notions about those let it be get back sessions are just not accurate in that the popular conception of them is is this sort of like dramatic you know almost like operatic throwdown between this band and you know in many many ways it was just like any other recording session i I don't i don't know if we should go to this this soon but like the yoko ono stuff is interesting to me because like there's this like super super simple kind of lazy narrative like about Yoko Ono breaking up the Beatles. And I think that like the, the the approach of this documentary was such that it just like puts you in the room and doesn't tell you to think anything. Mm-hmm. And Yoko Ono is not doing anything problematic, but Yoko Ono is always there, almost yeah. always. And that's, and it's, and you can't help but note it sometimes and, and wonder like, and then, but then at the same time, you end up like deep little halfway through part two and realize like, Linda is there a lot now too. Oh, there's Ringo's lady. Like, like, you know, so I, I, I too thought the Yoko stuff was really interesting. I, I want to give us credit. And um, now's the, the portion of the podcast where I want to recommend to people. If you are feeling like I am after finishing this movie, which is to be quite honest, I, I want another eight hour documentary about Abbey road. And then I want them to go backwards. And I don't know, I might have to go watch the Beatles anthology or something like that. But if you're wanting more content around this, go listen to our 1970 Beatles versus Stones podcast. Um, and I feel like in those years around this time of our podcast, I think we were pretty fair to Yoko Ono. And I think even at the time we had done some work um, between ourselves to dispel the sort of myth as the Yoko as the band breaker. And I, I, I mean, just based on watching this documentary, I just, I don't see it like you're right her she is sort of ever present but she and I don't at some point I stopped noticing her yeah you know? no one there's no problem it's and I'll, I'll say that I think we were fair and most more notably like I think you outlined that timeline you were especially fair like I was a little bit of a student of like how that all played out but yeah she's it's it's a unique scenario where she's just sitting directly next to John Lennon, which I don't know what was on like the papers she's going through and stuff like that. But I don't know. You can kind of see how some people might walk out of the studio and the Beatles end that year. And maybe that's the like easy thing to get people to seize upon or something. You know, and there might've also been an acceptance of it at that point, or maybe there was more um, sort of bitterness during the white album sessions. And I think there was also more weirdness around that time as far as that, that was when John like wheeled her into the recording studio in like a hospital bed because she was sick or something like that. But, you know, just based on this documentary, 
you know, Linda's daughter is way more annoying and disruptive yeah. than Yoko is. <laughs> I like when Linda's daughter comes in and does her Yoko Yoko uh, singing in the mic. Yes, that was pretty adorable. And I just, I, I feel like growing up in a Beatles fandom, Yoko Ono is really more of a concept than a person, yeah. right? You don't really know anything about her. And I felt like this document, I, I, I have to imagine that one of Peter Jackson's goals, which let's be honest, like he's, he's trying to establish a bunch of narratives and like set narratives in a certain way, even though it's an eight hour documentary, it's still edited in certain ways to sort of tell a certain story. I think he really humanizes her even, even without basically saying a word in the love that Yoko and John have for each other and the affection really comes through in a way that you would just never understand if it, other than, you know, just, Oh, John Lennon's dating this weird, you know, Asian lady, because that was a factor as well. Her race absolutely played a factor in how that story was told. And, you know, it's some kind of publicity style. You don't see those moments of tenderness like you do in this movie. Totally. And, and I mean, there's no there, you don't get animosity from the other band members. You don't get John acting different one way with her and one way without her. It's like, yeah, it was, it was a cool, cool thing to see some stuff. You just, some stuff you just said about like, I would like to see a thing like this. Like you, you, you referenced the fact that like the 1970 episode we did of this podcast is worth going back to. And I really do think that, like, I think that most of those episodes were good, but what's funny is on that episode about let it be, we referenced back to the episode about Abbey road. And it was sort of like, this is an amazing album, an amazing year. I think the Rolling Stones put out, let it, let it bleed around that time. And, but there was so much more happening on this one. There was so much more happening at this time and the like the kind of scenario surrounding all of it, which is kind of funny because there you essentially see them writing the Abbey Road songs at the same time. But then also when you think about this album, this album is like kind of the most straight and narrow album they made since like prior to Rubber Soul almost, you know, like it's it's them trying to make a thing they can play live on a cruise ship Mm -hmm. or a rooftop or in some African country or whatever, Mm -hmm. and which they hadn't done. They hadn't been playing live at all. And so it's kind of wild to think about like, okay, we were dropped in to watch them go about this process while making this music. That is like four people sitting around writing it. Like, what was that process like making Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band? Like, which is like a whole different thing, you know? It really does beg the question of how representative is this it's certainly comprehensive as far as the recording of those songs for uh, Let It Be are, but how representative is that of their process overall? One of the things I thought that I noticed I thought was kind of interesting is any time that some, basically whoever showed up in the studio first most days, at least the way Peter Jackson presents it, sort of started playing yeah. around with the song. Yeah. Like, oh, Ringo's here. He's 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 gonna he, he's he's gonna set the tone for the first song and he's gonna start playing Octopus's Garden and George is like cool let me let me help you with that it's it's portrayed to you as just pure like verite there's it just you're just getting what's happening but you're right he gets to pick how it all lays out especially I love how clear they were with the stuff up front that like there is three times more audio than as there is video so there's gonna be video overlaid with stuff that isn't that video but we are doing our best to make sure that it's like 
maintaining the sentiment of what's happening. Like uh, I like that honesty up front, but you're, you're right. Like sitting there kind of jamming on like, I mean, half the time they're jamming on like old blues cover songs and stuff like that. Well, and that's what I was going to in, in the abstract, if you said, Hey, here, uh, yes, it's the Beatles, but here's an eight hour documentary about the recording of one album. There's no way that could work. You, it, it, it shouldn't work. And the reason why it does work is because it's not one album that no. they're playing around with. It's both, you know, obviously the Let It Be songs. Then they're also tinkering with songs that will go on Abbey Road. Um, and then there's a bunch of they play and work through a couple songs, songs that would end up on George's All Things Must Pass songs that end up on plastic Ono band. And so that's what part of the way it allows them to fill out an eight hour documentary, not to mention all of the, the old stuff that they just kind of fuck around with and warm up with. One of my favorite moments from the documentary is, is that it's like a little 42nd clip of Paul at the piano playing strawberry fields and singing. I know, I know. And I'm sure that's been like a demo that's been out there, but I had never heard it before. And I Hell was like, no. that's, that's beautiful. That that's amazing. Totally. And, and actually like the timeline, like strawberry fields is out. What? Like two years earlier, one year earlier, like mm-hmm. the, it's all, it all happened so fast for that band, which we talked about a ton on the podcast, but like there's, there's so many moments like that. There's, I don't know if it's two of us or, there's the one that they sing together staring at each other with the with their teeth clenched yeah that's two of us (laughs) it's like what is that but you also in that 1971 you talk about two of us as like a like you can people can talk about this as uh paul mccartney and linda mccartney or you can talk about it as paul mccartney and john lennon and like in a moment like that that has this weird playfulness and they're like staring right at each other you just and the like kind of nature of where you know the band's about to go is so like cool and playful and beautiful. Listening back to that 1970 podcast, I, I honestly feel like this documentary it confirmed so many of my I mean, confirmed is a strong word, but deepen my suspicion on a lot of these things. And I feel like what you just brought up is one of them. I hundred percent believe that that song two of us is is between paul and john and and paul can say that he wrote it for linda and maybe he did maybe it started out that way or whatever but i i that song will never not be associated with those two yeah they will always be the the two of us yeah i'll come out and say like fully agree and i'll say like don't want to spend time on this but like we both did like an assessment of how we felt about um like what what albums rose in our standing and everything after 10 years spending of time spent with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And during that year, that 70 podcast, we talked about how much we loved Let It Be. And in the last one, we talked about how much it was like sort of a uh, one that just stood out and like, oh my God, I love this so much. And like, that's not the kind of historic narrative of Let It Be. Like, am I right? Like, to me, let it be is sort of like step step sibling of Abbey Road. Kind of, um, the band is coming to pieces. It's not cohesive in the way that some of the other ones were. Not White Album wasn't cohesive, but it was big and sprawling and everything at least. And then 
rubber sole and revolver, all that. Like let it be was kind of like the sort of like they're getting dinged a little bit and then they're done. And they literally release solo albums at the same time. I think that you have like let it be naked comes a little later. You have um, I know it got reassessed early this year and released leading up to this documentary. I like fully believe that, that let it be is, is like going to forever be up there Beatles record now going forward, I, just sort of well, yeah. the narrative of it. Having this document. I mean, I, I'm not aware of anything the, the closest thing that I've ever seen to this is that um, Godard film that we talked about of where the Rolling Stones it's a it's about if you combine all the segments together it's about a 10 minute long uh document of them writing sympathy from the devil from Mick playing on acoustic to like yeah. fully formed over and and so that's the only thing that I can think of that's anywhere even close to this and that's a single song so I think this will change people's perception but honestly I don't really I don't know people's perceptions around these later period Beatles albums we know that you know here comes the sun is the number one listen to song on Spotify or whatever but personally I don't I don't know anyone that's like a huge fan of Abbey Road I almost feel like that album is more known for like its cover art and a couple of, of big hit songs so I can't really say for sure maybe people can send us some emails Beatles versus Stones pod and let us know um, if, if they or their friends feel very strongly about Abbey Road. I, I, I definitely think Abbey Road up and like is higher in the estimation of, of people. I mean, we talked about the idea that that 1969 was the best year for both those two bands, but you are right about the cover. And honestly, the cover is a billion times better than the Let It Be cover. <laughs> yeah. And when I watched this documentary, eight hours, especially on that sound stage before they move, which it's, yeah. it's awesome to watch the kind of like vibe change and everything when they move locations and all that. But in that first location and like the way they're dressed and where they are, it's criminal that that's the cover of Let It Be. Like they played on a rooftop, they, mm -hmm. play, they wore all this bitching outfits and stuff and they looked... And they and they like recorded all that stuff and they wrote all that stuff in the same room together. Like there's there's something authentic about that. There are so many opportunities there. You probably could have taken a random uh, Linda McCartney photo from that room and had a better album cover. Like let it be. Yeah. Is it, it, that's just I don't care if those are their faces on the rooftop. Like that's a very lame album cover made even more lame in our era of like grid shaped Zoom calls, which is what it looks like. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's no defense of that. And and yeah, they could have gotten something from Twickenham. I, I it, it was interesting watching that. And, you know, I don't want to keep repeating myself, but I, I can't can't help but constantly be aware of the sort of like omnipresent filmmaker and, and the way this footage is put together. And maybe if it was edited or different footage was selected, things might seem different. But just watching the first part, right away you're like this is a terrible place like this this is not a good creative space to be in i wouldn't want to try to record an album there or play a show there yeah. i don't know what it is about it but it just it seemed it seemed like that from the get-go yeah and it was funny to watch them i mean that's what's cool you get to watch them go out the process of being like yo we gotta go but they're but, it, but what's like wild about it is they're talking you're not only processing that you're processing whether 
after 20 days of this, you're playing on a cruise ship or in <laughs> like that part, the, the whole like amount of uncertainty leading up to what they would do at the end of it was so funny to me. It's funny and also kind of unbelievable. Yeah. Like, not not, like not in the literal sense, but just like uh, this, this history has been written and we all know how it ends. But the idea that at the time in this single month, they're like, I don't know, what's this going to be? And so, to me, I, I kept laughing or finding interesting that Paul was so hung up on this idea of like, we got to do a thing. And it's like, what are you talking about, Paul? Like, <laughs> you know, my wife who watched this whole thing with me, she, she did make a good point because I was sort of asking her, like, why is he so obsessed that there needs to be some kind of thing, some, some thing that happens? Why can't they just record an album? and put it out. And she was saying that her interpretation of it was Paul was really looking for the payoff. Like he wanted there to be a big payoff for all this work and strife. And it's like, okay, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. I mean, for sure. He, he, they have a conversation that is kind of like, I'm almost like hesitant to say, but in a way that I totally identify with where he's like talking about, it's him and John Lennon talking about what comes of the end of this. It's, it's probably the same time you had this conversation with Whitney, mm-hmm. but like, I think he's kind of organizing it in his head. Like I want to understand what we're doing here so right. that I can do it in the right way. Am mm-hmm. I, am I jamming and piddling around and we're going to, we're practicing for a thing we'll later record in a studio. Are we making a live album? Are we mm-hmm. doing some combination of both? Are we playing to a crowd? Like, I just want to understand. I think it's like, there's a little bit of passive, like him trying to push John towards something in it, but also just really trying to like understand it. So he can be like, okay, this makes it clean in my head. And now I can go forward with that in mind. It's kind of, kind of like really identified with that in a way that was like, it's like such a trivial conversation that feels so like disconnected from just like you just go in there and play music. You're like the Beatles, you're there. But at the same time, right. I, I, I'm, I'm pulled toward that same thought process sometimes. I, so I think this is a good place to kind of dive, dive deep into some Paul talk because in, in a lot of ways he, if you were going to pick like a sort of subject for this documentary, he, he, he definitely feels like he has the most screen time. And I feel like his dynamic with everyone else sort of drives the documentary and so like he's leading this thing for sure like he's it's him it's him kind of trying to like shepherd people toward this like vibrant thing to happen and everyone else but it's like everyone else is going with that in their way but with all their own unique ways of being like i mean ringo's kind of cruising but the other two have their own like little little things going on but paul's like He's not a dick either, though. He's 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 uh, he, sometimes it feels like he's bordering on dickishness. And and so, you know, I think one of the great things about this documentary is it really fleshed out. It, it was just like there was something inevitable about this whole thing, just as Fully far right. as like the complexity of like human interaction. You know, I know that sounds kind of dramatic, but it, it wasn't. Like Paul says that thing, I, I it just stands out so firmly in my mind where I, I don't know if it's in that same part or one of the parts where they're discussing what they want to do. And he's sort of just like, I don't know. This is just sort of the way I am, like kind of acknowledging and like sort of self-criticizing, but also 
being realistic. And he has a way about him that I'm like, yeah, I get why the other guys are fucking annoyed by you because yeah. you can be really annoying at times and you can be, he's the kind of person who's like bossy, but also trying to seem like, Hey, I'm your friend. Yeah, it's true though. But he, I mean, he's, it's not bossy. It's not him trying to say, here's what we have to do, but it's him feeling, I think he knows it's, it's done. Like it's, it's about to be done for the Beatles unless they do a thing that is done with intention. And he's trying to like impart that intention and get them going. But meanwhile, you got George telling you he's got a double album worth of songs locked and loaded. And you got, I mean, Ringo again, who just like, he's there to, to, Ringo's pretty positive almost all the time and then John has his own set of things going on and I think Paul McCartney's like it is a it's a little bit of like a last gasp and you know I guess I want to be clear that I have a lot of empathy for Paul in this experience and I also feel like he has a lot to like answer for you know it's it's both of those things and really one of my takeaways as far as that dynamic is that Paul is the only one who really seems like he still wants there to be a Beatles or he's the only one that cares truly whether or not the Beatles and that's what's sort of driving him. And that's, what's driving him to be like, we need to do a thing to give us a goal, to give us a reason because, which is almost ironic because you get the sense that Paul would just be in the Beatles to be in the Beatles without having some kind of goal. And that he's almost creating that, for the other members to, to give them a reason to push forward. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that is hundred percent what's happening. It's like all this stuff needs to be more than just us, just like sitting in some space for 21 days, writing songs for the next album because they stopped touring four five, six years earlier. And that's all they do is put out an album and then move on to the next one. And I mean, it's kind of crazy because that's revolver Sergeant Pepper's white album, Abbey road. I mean, Abbey Road, I guess, comes after, but like he's 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 like trying to like, I don't know, he's trying to push it towards something more beyond that. But I don't know. It's it's funny to think about like that's how his that's what his vibe is in that room. And then the part when there's a part where where George Harrison says something along the lines of like, um, I've got like, what's he say? I've got, I've got an album worth of songs that I've been giving songs to other people and fuck that. I'm just going to do me for a little bit. And he's like saying that to John Lennon and John Lennon's approach, like totally the antithesis of Paul McCartney is like, yeah, yeah, bro. Like (laughs) whatever we can do the Beatles thing and you can do that thing. Like, This is where I'm going to push back a little bit on the maybe bossy is the wrong word for Paul, but maybe a better word is controlling. Yeah. I, I think you're, I think it's insane that don't let me down. Wasn't on the initial release of let it be, but that, but that like he, when, we, what we talked about with strawberry fields and penny lane and stuff, those weren't on records, you know? So like, yeah, I think that was more of a singles thing. Yeah. Than being a, like a, this. Yeah. That's kind of its own big deal. Right. Like people, people, it's not like don't let me down was unknown. Like that was a right. big song too, but like, still should have been on it. Like it's one of the main, it's one of the more prominent songs you hear repeatedly in this documentary, like during these sessions, like, but I mean, McCartney one is made in solitude all by him. And he's, 
I think he did feel like he was doing more of the work for it or something. Like there's parts where he's talking to John Lennon about like, why don't you bring a little more or whatever? And it's a little passive aggressive and stuff, but I I don't know. I think It, it may be a stretch. I'm just saying like, he's very dismissive of George in his, in some certain ways, he's very dismissive of John and, one of you know we love sports analogies on this podcast uh because they're the best kinds of analogies let's go and i was sitting down and i was thinking about it and and to me what paul's role is supposed to be on the team is paul needs to be the star player not the team captain right and he is being sort of forced into this role um when that's that shouldn't be his role and i think Prior in the Beatles, that role was handled a little bit more by John and then a sort of combination of Brian Epstein and George Martin. And now Brian Epstein is passed away. Um, Paul is being thrust into that sort of leadership role. And I don't think that's where you you want him to be your sort of star player. Yeah, actually, I thought it was like insightful that they kind of started the documentary almost out the gate with Brian Epstein's death. Like you they, know, they kind of made clear that that like this is a band existing without this important influence. And I think one of my favorite things about this documentary, it, it does a good job of orienting people. And like my wife who likes the Beatles, but isn't necessarily a super fan, you know, she was never confused or anything like that, but it, it really does lay some breadcrumbs out for your sort of Beatles mega fans. And that Brian Epstein's death is a cloud hanging over this and the Alan Klein stuff that's sort of peppered in there is also another cloud that's sort of hanging in there. The people, the people around them are, are so interesting and, and fun to watch. Like here, here's the thing that I'll note. like Paul. Okay. He's kind of, he's kind of pushing them. He's kind of doing it. And like, he can e- it can easily verge on bossy or, um, passive aggressively trying to get the thing to be what he wants it to be or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like the way they interact, the way John Lennon, like John Lennon is equal parts, or I think in most people's minds, maybe even slightly more than Paul McCartney with the Beatles, maybe not most people's, uh-huh. but like John Lennon's iconic, you know, right. and, and going to say what he's going to say. John, the way he talks with Paul McCartney is, is respectful and conversational, even in conflict and the way he talks to Glenn Johns, like producing the album, he's a fucking dick to Glenn Johns. They were all very annoyed by Glenn Johns. Like, I frequently. loved that. That was so <laughs> funny. And I think that was a thing. I think you talked about that maybe in the way that it was like he he produced it, but then this thing gets passed on to Phil Spector, right? That's mm-hmm. the that's that narrative. Yeah. But then on on the 1970 podcast, you also also talked about uh Jesus Christ, what's who's our who's our boy who produced all their records? Uh George Martin. George Martin. George Martin's kind of around the scene and there's full respect for him. Yeah. Like Glenn Johns ain't getting any of that. He says, there's that one point where John Lennon says, the only damper in here is you, Glenn Johns. <laughs> and they're like calling him out to like with a screwdriver to fix mic stands and stuff. And maybe that's his job, but it feels deliberately demeaning. And that's yeah. so funny. I thought some of that stuff was really interesting. There were those moments, where, again, when they were really trying to figure out sort of what's this going to be? Is this going to be a performance? How are we going to approach this, approach it musically? How prepared do we need to be? 
and and there was that the couple of times where it's like you have both like George Martin and Michael Lindsay Hogg, who is a big character in this documentary as the director, sort of telling them like, oh, you should do it like this, like really trying to give them that direction. And on the one hand, you could say like they maybe they kind of needed it and there was that leadership void. On the other hand, part of me wanted to be like, hey, how about you guys shut the fuck up? Like, <laughs> like you can maybe like throw an idea out there, but like who who told you to like tell us what to do? A moment that jumped out to me is when they're like, they did the close, one of the closer moments they get to like montaging anything. And this is mm-hmm. us bringing you back to like the name of this podcast is like Lenin and most of them, like they, there's these scenes where they're surrounding a piano looking at like, fucking blueprints of some place they could play or looking at newspaper headlines or whatever. And there there's one where they're around it and you're getting kind of headlines of like the Beatles basically feuding, like in strife, mm-hmm. like all that. And in that scene you have, I think it's John Lennon holding and staring and like admiring a copy of beggars banquet, which was just so tight to me. Yeah, that was great. The, the like multiple, mentions of the rock and roll circus yep. was very um gratifying to me um as as someone who <laughs> you were I, all in on <laughs> i was all in on and i i felt like i was um maybe overstating my case when we were doing the podcast yeah. that maybe people are going to listen to it and be like what this is just some stupid thing that happened like why are you hyping it up and it was at, it seemed like it was at least a big deal to John Lennon at the time. Oh, we did this on the circus. Blah, blah, in the circus. Oh, it's like he fucking loved the circus and was totally like, yeah, Alan Klein was like him talking about introducing and talking about Alan Klein was so good. And then who who is it that's in the room? I think it's Glenn Johns like alluding to like he's kind of weird. Oh, yeah. like, which is essentially he's kind of an asshole. What did Glenn Johns say? He was saying that Oh, if, if you're talking to him and he you he asks you a question and you start to give an answer that he doesn't like, he'll just immediately start talking about <laughs> something else before you even finish. It's like, that's a fucking red flag. Yeah. Like, Glenn Johns, <laughs> and may, maybe that's that speaks to uh, part of John's annoyance with him or, or some of the conflict there. Um one of the one of the other standout moments of the documentary to me is that that I'd say overall the the vibe and the mood was much more positive for most of the runtime than I would have expected. The scene where they are where Paul is like reading the the newspaper article about their quote unquote fight as they like play kind of a dirge over it. Something yeah. about that was just like devastating. Yeah. Like it kind of started out as a joke. And then it sort of like, it was almost like Paul was like reading their eulogy. Like the the energy in the room was very much like this, this is on its way to the end. The reality was, is that it was on the way to its end. Right. And so like, absolutely. I mean, I don't know. There, there were a lot of moments that were like, something's happening in the foreground and then in the background, something as wild as like the long and winding road literally getting written. Right. Or like, let it be literally the song being written. And it's like, like, we don't get to like, kind of just watch any people just write music. You know, it's a pretty private thing that's usually happening mm-hmm. in a room with either one person or a handful of people. And so like, that's a rare thing to see. 
but you're seeing it with the Beatles. And then you're seeing it with the Beatles as like you just described, like the narrative that ultimately results in the Beatles not being a thing anymore is happening. It's like, you can't, you can't beat that. There's a lot going on. And, and I think, you know, I'm just going to say this up top and then we can sort of move past the qualifiers, but like we, we are both musicians that have had the experience of writing songs, working with other musicians to like fully craft those songs and then also to record those songs. And if nothing else like this as a document for the creative process of like creating a song and recording a song there is never maybe ever been like a better document of of what's that what that looks like i mean no doubt as you said like this is the beatles doing it but there's also a certain part of it where it's like oh yeah that's just universal like that's that's like every song that's that's ever been written and i think for someone like my wife I think she got a lot out of that as a sort of window into that. And I got a lot out of it to being like, yeah, huh, I do that too. Yeah, I know. And, and like, same, same with my wife, like you're sitting there, it's within the first hour of the thing that McCartney basically like plucks, get back from like the ether. Yeah. That's one of the more, that's just, I mean, that's how someone writes a song, but that's Paul McCartney writing, get back basically from just a little rhythmic thing he's strumming of one chord on his it's and yeah like you just kind of snap your attention up same thing bianca like like watching her like see that like all of a sudden you detect the melody that it will be and stuff i think you're right that's it's then it happens the same thing with don't let me down it happens with a lot of these songs that you just well, basically the, see, see them the from sort of genesis blind paths that they go down and be yeah. like oh it could have gone this way and it would have sounded more like this because it's something I was trying to explain to my wife too is, you know, that, that stuff actually doesn't ever kind of really end. And there is something like after you record a song, you're like, that's the final version. Like maybe you play it more like that, but also like it can change after you record it and it yeah. can still morph a little bit and, and change into a different part. And one of the things that I thought was most relatable as far as being in that recording or writing process was just the stupid nonsense that they were like constantly getting into. Right. And doing songs in a goofy way, or like, <laughs> you know, in the middle of like trying to nail a song, just like playing some other random song. And, and a thought occurred to me. And I get, I don't know how much of this is editing, but the thought occurred to me that man, Ringo is the ideal drummer. God, Cause yeah. in that whole time, I, anyone who's ever been a musician you know, think about the part where John gets behind the drums and like right away he starts doing some obnoxious drum <laughs> fill that like, a, like is too loud and drowns out everyone talking in the room, which we've all done. I've uh-huh. done that a it's million hard not times. To. It's really hard not to. Ringo never does that. He's not just w- slouched with his like extremely good mustache behind there. Just like looking just like I'm chilling. Like, let me know when something happens here. I couldn't, I reflecting back, I could not believe that. Like there's not one moment in that entire like stock of film where they're like, Ringo, stop, like shut, <laughs> yeah, shut yeah. up. Yeah. Can that's a fixture a of all, of all band practicing. He, yeah. Ringo, Ringo, like let's do some Ringo for, for a minute. Cause like there's that, there's that quality. There's the sort of like, he kind of seems good with everybody at most times quality, which is pretty important when you got mm-hmm. three songwriters to, I mean, two of the most iconic and you have 
they're like and he and when he is playing he's he's great and great in a way that's like not trying to be the star but is just like complimentary and creative in the same way the beatles kind of all are you know he's just doing he's happy he's happy to take those notes in a way that easily frustrates someone like george harrison rightfully so yeah but if paul's like you know it needs to be more like chuck 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 like he's like okay that's what the drum like (laughs) paul does paul does a lot of that paul does a lot of that yeah a lot of like here's what your instrument needs to sound like type stuff it's funny he does do that and it kind of going back to what we said earlier like that's the difference in this band and why they end up dissolving or breaking up is you know george harrison sort of going well i don't need to like craft my part to be what paul mccartney wants on his song i can just write my own songs and there's no need for me to constrain myself to be the guitar player for paul mccartney and you're right and then he made all things must pass and then i mean maybe he maybe it was helpful to him though well so so i want to let's finish up there's there are decades that follow that but yeah ringo the the Ringo the Ringo part where the part where Linda McCartney is in there like pretty early on when she shows up and I think she's talking to Yoko and like Ringo it's just totally random it's totally out of nowhere mm-hmm. when Ringo walks by and then someone says something nice about Ringo and then she says I'm most relaxed when I'm around Ring it's like uh-huh. totally unprompted there's something really pleasant about Linda McCartney first of all and then just that comment about Ringo it's like a very heartwarming kind of like moment that is gone in seven seconds and and michael Lindsay hogg immediately without thinking is like me too yep yeah and and again not to divert away from ringo but every time linda was in this was in this documentary i just could not help but think of david wilde saying do you think i know about love (laughs) yeah (laughs) you think i should know do you think i know about love yes Um, yes okay go marry that woman um Ringo farting, hilarious. Yep. That's that's right in the middle of the Alan Klein conversation. Like, there's like, <laughs> that's like in a moment of a little bit of tension. That's not just the four of them. That's like, like pretty great. <laughs> and, and so, and, go ahead, good. No, no, you go ahead. There's all those things we just said about Ringo, complimentary and funny and everything. But like to to turn the compliment back on the Beatles, like I know he has what two two or three songs on each abbey road and let it be like that period of time Mm -hmm. it's not it's not like he's like writing the lion's share or anything like that it would be insane if he did so Mm -hmm. but but whatever balance they have when he gets there and is moving around with octopus's garden which someone could decide like someone like the kind of like sort of savvy guru guy like uh george harrison could laugh that out of the room you know, yeah. they roll with it and refine it and work with it. They under there, there's something that is like, like, all right, let's do this. Let's make this. And like, I like Octopus's Garden, but not in, in I, a lot of those, those, those Ringo songs, I kind of separate from the way I like a lot of Beatles songs because I like them in like those songs in different ways. But like, there's a, there's a collaborative spirit in that, that is nice to see. I think it's really beautiful. And I, I, I hate to harp on this, but I do feel like it's somewhat in contrast to how Paul is operating and that you see in a lot of those moments that when the songs are brought out in the sort of spirit of like openness and creativity and like 
flexibility as far as like, hey, I kind of have this thing. And, and you give those guys the opportunity to suggest and to play with it. They're so supportive and they're right there to jump in and to really work, you know, like really work on it. It's, it's when they're being told to box themselves in or, or like do this a specific way that they're not comfortable doing that. That's what seems to cause a lot of the strife. Yeah, it's true. And do you, do you think that's Paul McCartney in this moment or Paul McCartney all along with the Beatles? No, I think that's him in this moment. And I, I feel like they're in this documentary, like watching Paul in those, in those specific moments, I really recognize something to me, it comes as something like he can't help it. Like he literally cannot help being that way at yeah. that moment. And, and like, I think there's a big part of him that like wishes that he could not act that way at times. And he either doesn't realize he's doing it or just like, can't help himself. I think, I think that's spot on. I think that's kind of what's happening, but I think he also, he also thinks I'm the one coordinating this i'm the one trying to get this to be a thing and to be a thing that's not just normal and whatever like he's trying to he, he's working at something but he's like trying to get everyone on board with his own thing but they don't necessarily have to you know like why why they're they're all beetles too you know and, and that's why i don't want to come off as too hard on paul because you know to use a really broad example like we've all been on a group project where like you're the only person that cares or the only person that's like going to get it done. And so a large part, I can't blame Paul for being, you know, pushy or like controlling because he's the only one who seems to care. And if he doesn't do those things, then maybe nothing gets done. Maybe there is no album. Maybe there's no performance. And so I I think, I think if you take him and have him be the same approach as the other three, there, there isn't. And so that's why no, yeah. if there's no let it be, there's also no Abbey Road. Yeah, hundred percent. And so it's hard to fault Paul for being that way, which is also why I feel the whole thing feels inevitable, because he he couldn't he couldn't really act any other way to some degree. Or like, you'd have to expect him to be one of the most magnanimous like superstars in the history of rock and roll music to both like push everyone forward while also being like perfectly open to everyone's ideas and and so yeah it's it's just a, a innately human conflict and the other thing that i was thinking about watching this and and it's for me it's hard not to watch this and sort of speculate like why did the beatles break up right that's that's like the age old question a lot of people stupidly blame yoko in my opinion and and then there's the whole alan klein thing but if you really get it down to it how many people in your late 20s, how many people that you were friends with when you were 15 were you still friends with in your late 20s? Your life changes. You're, you change as a person. There's no doubt about it. And that's, that's to me, that's really the story of the Beatles. Like these guys spent an insane amount of time together and they just grew and changed and wanted different things, even just musically. So it's, yeah. there's no grand secret of like this person sabotaged this person. What it's, it's just people growing and growing apart. And that, unfortunately there's something even more like existentially sad about that than like the girlfriend broke it up. I think the word inevitability, the way you put it is, is the story here because like, like let's, 
if we're honest, like George Harrison did have an album worth of songs there. He had a double album worth of songs or triple or whatever. I don't know. Like mm-hmm. all things must pass has, there's a ton of songs on it. Lennon had plastic Ono band. And like, I mean, it literally contains, he, he has this whole thing happening with Yoko Ono. She doesn't have to be breaking up the band for that to be like a thing that's becoming more important in his life. And then what you just described with like Paul McCartney basically trying to, he's not a dictator in that band, never has been. But in this case, in this scenario, they kind of need, he feels like he needs to be the person kind of pushing it up the hill all the time. It's probably not coincidental that he makes a thing all by, makes a solo album all by himself with no other people on it right after this. Mm -hmm. Like he just gets to do literally every single thing that he wants to, doesn't have to worry about any other people. And that's, that's it, you know? And then Ringo to like, to like bring him into it. Ringo plays on two of those albums. Yeah. Plays, and- like they all kind of, it, it, it did, it is inevitable. It gave me a new context to sort of Ringo's participation in those albums. And actually John is on all things must, I think John and George both play on each other's album. Um, and it makes perfect sense because they were already practicing. They already knew these songs. To yeah. Some yeah. Degree. That's a good point. And so it wasn't just a matter of like, hey, I wrote all these new songs. You want to come in and learn them? Like Ringo probably already knew them to some degree. So it makes perfect sense that he would come in and play there. Um, I do want to throw out one more alternate theory as far as why the Beatles broke up. And I think it's directly shown in this documentary. The reason the Beatles broke up is directly because of Paul's sleepy ballads. (laughs) Every time Paul goes on one of these kicks where he wants to practice Let It Be or The Long and Winding Road, the energy just gets totally sucked out of the room. They, and they everyone pan, seems, yeah, they pan the room and people look so bored. They're so bored and he's just playing them over and over again and he can't seem to master them. And, and, and I, after watching this, I was like, maybe that's why they broke up. Maybe if Paul had just been like, you know what? This will just be me on piano. This will just be a piano ballad, just me. What's and funny? You guys can like go home. What's funny is that on the <clears throat> on the 1970s Let It Be uh, Beatles Stones podcast that we both listened to earlier today for the first time since recording it, the uh, we say like the long and winding road is three minutes long but feels six minutes long. <laughs> And that that's, it's very true. But the same is true about across the universe. I'd say that's like some, Mm -hmm. that's, that's a a blemish on this time period. Although it seems insane to say, because those are both good songs, you know, they're nice enough songs, but. um. No, I will say that was something that I was wrong about, or at least like had some kind of misconception, or maybe the misconception has been re circulated by the Beatles themselves. But in that podcast, I talked about how, Phil Spector came in and added all of this orchestral music to the long and winding road. And yeah. in the, in the documentary, Paul himself uh, yep. is like, it would be really nice to have some strings and some brass. And I was like, ah, Paul, you <laughs> liar. I want to go in on, on the song, get back. The, the movie is called get back. The uh, original title for this album was probably going to be get back. It's on let it be naked. It's the first track. And then it also allows us to get to uh, Billy Preston. There's this scene, this scene where they're wheeling in the like electric organ. How we is, not? Uh, we've been saving Billy Preston. If it wasn't clear, 
Well, here, tell, tell us a little bit about the, like how, how Billy Preston was talked about and treated on the podcast and then redeemed. I, for, I, I just want to say, I'm so glad that I already made my apology to Billy you, Preston. I'm glad I don't did. have to be making it on this podcast. You would have, we would have had to nuke that episode from the series if, if you hadn't <laughs> made that apology because goddamn. So originally we, I had mentioned Billy Preston and I had mentioned him kind of flippantly um, as this, I don't even think I mentioned him by name. I just said there was this keyboard player. He came in to play, you know, on a couple sessions with the Beatles and they needed a keyboard player. And then he was like, cool. So I'm in the band. And they were like, uh, no. <laughs> and that is such a total gross misrepresentation of both what happened and who Billy Preston is. And um, even since I've made my apology, I've continued to learn more and more about Billy Preston. And this guy was uh, a virtuoso. He was uh, I, apparently by many considered the maybe the best pianist of the, si- the 60s or the er- late 60s going into the early 70s, just like anywhere ever played with Ray Charles Um and yeah. so this guy was almost already a legend before he even set foot into those studios. Yeah. And you you learned some of this during the podcast series, made that all very clear, and I think did a very good uh, sort of uh, podcast correction on that. And that was good for me because I didn't know any of it. I had no idea. And so then when I see in this, like we've talked about, like, it's it's this is just like there's no, there's no cutting over to like uh, 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 Dave Grohl to ask him what he thinks of the Beatles in this, right? There's no talking. There's no. <laughs> oh my god, that would be fucking terrible. I didn't even consider that possibility until just now, and I'm. But that's so what glad. most. But that's what most documentaries are. I think by because you have to push, you have to like get to your narrative that way. You have to have star power to attract more people to watch it. Whatever that's that i mean just think about it that's what most documentaries are let's talk to someone and they tell you about how like Mm -hmm. great they were or whatever which and and who's it's insane that i'm blanking on the lead singer fugazi's name ian mckay ian mckay and dave grohl have like (laughs) they've they've done a good amount of that but so but what what um a choice that peter jackson clearly made in this was to show to have to show the conversation about like keyboard playing and something maybe missing on that song and everything like that and then show that like is it an electric organ what would you call it it's a fender roads a fender roads to show that fender roads literally get wheeled in on a dolly yeah. and kind of moved around <laughs> you see preston in there and stuff and then to show them start to play and to show the way that it that it clicks with him is like totally not accidental and so badass i was so happy to watch that part of it it's magic, and I, I I do think there's a world in which this whole documentary series is like five hours or or, or even like a three hour version of this. But what Jackson does is he really uses the like overwhelming amount of material to his advantage, and the way he does that is he he forces you instead of having those talking heads to sort of explain what's going on it's really grounded in the emotions in the mood of the people that are in the room. And you, yep. you, you learn so much about them and what's going on through the looks on their faces and, and their tone of voice and how they're sort of feeling that day. And it's just undeniable that moment when that happens, you can just 
feel and see the lift of the spirits of, of everyone in that room that Billy Preston, not just with his musical prowess, but his presence and his yeah. attitude, it's like having another Ringo there. It's a to- exactly that it's like total energy. He's adding to the positive energy of the thing, but also not making it even remotely about himself. He's chilling almost all the time that other stuff's happening around him. And if anybody else is just going to be in there for a few days to try and like round out some Beatles songs, that's the most nerve wracking thing you could do. I mean, I do get the, I did get the sense that he was a little bit nervous. Yeah. It it didn't show in his playing, but also I think, uh, in conversation with my with my wife and and talking about the the, the music and and the documentary itself is I, her not really being as familiar with these songs and the sort of story as I was she I think internally especially when they're in the Twickenham studios you can kind of feel like something's missing here but maybe it's that these songs are just not fully written yet and then to, for her to later realize like oh, this is what was missing from those songs because these songs don't sound right without Billy Preston on them. Like that's, it's just a fact. I mean, I think it, I think both things are true. I think that they went to a place with nothing but either the seeds of songs or discovered the seeds when they were at the first place. Twickenham, I've never confidently been, been ready to say that, (laughs) but, but those songs absolutely need that. Like that is not just an incidental part of get back and a few of those other songs. And so it, it does raise that question that we have asked on this podcast before, which is maybe they don't break up if they have a little bit more um, sense of bringing other musicians in. And that keeps things a little bit more interesting to them. Maybe they bring in Eric Clapton more. Maybe they bring in Klaus Vorman. Um, you know, I, I don't remember if they said this in the documentary or not, but I think it was George that had the idea to invite Billy Preston to come sit in with them. And partially it was obviously because he knew that he was a great keyboard player, but also part of his intention was that he expected everyone else to be on their best behavior because there was another musician there that wasn't the four of them. It just was, I was so excited about that because not only because of what he actually brought, like if I knew nothing about Billy Preston, that would have been a cool moment for me, but it just was like extra. That was, and and I mean, honestly, to like shoot you some, some credit, it was like literally exactly the way you described it all the way, all the way to the point of no, Billy Preston didn't say, okay, I'm in the Beatles now. It's you, you hear John Lennon in this thing, essentially saying we should get that guy in the band. I, 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 hate, I hate to toot my own horn, but I really did feel like that conversation, not that I like did a ton of research on it, but it was verbatim what I said, it's right hard. down to, to Paul saying like, it's hard enough with four. As far as newspaper corrections go, that's like Pulitzer. Pulitzer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was also extremely pleased in that scene where George and John are talking about all of George's songs and George uh, one of them s- suggests the idea that maybe they do just do an album of all George's songs, but with the Beatles. Yeah. And that was also an idea that I had suggested on this podcast. That's right. As a way to sort of save the Beatles and not, because you, you had said, maybe it's not a bad thing. I, in fact, you said, I'm glad that they broke up. 
uh, <laughs> so that <laughs> we get all these cool solo albums. And, and I said, well, what if they did the solo albums, but just with the Beatles as their backing band? That there's probably a product of like them growing with two of the best songwriters in the world ever. And then George grows into his own, which we did our own amount of like, like sort of throwing a tiny bit of like cheeky shade at George during mm-hmm. the podcast. But, but he like the, the, the reality is he was writing a lot of songs and writing better songs. And, and it just makes sense that he should be able to do something on his own or become equal parts songwriter in the Beatles. But that's a hard thing to change midstream. I will say if I can have a, you know, another opportunity to shit on George for like a second is I can see the perspective where you are one of the two greatest songwriters ever. And I know a lot of people love the song, but like George walks in and he's like, I have this song. It's I, me, mine. And you just like listen to those words and it's, they're very unimpressive lyrics to like, to to sing to Paul McCartney, I can see how he's sort of like this is. They are they are unimpressive lyrics, but I think that song, in its initial form and its final form, is interstitial. Like it's like a bridge between two other songs, and I think is, every album needs that. It is interstitial, and it also is is better, obviously fully realized. Like you need that full George Harrison sound to like, like bring it all together. I just think it's a funny idea of like, well, yeah, you could see Paul McCartney sitting there being like, this is, these are the songs that I need to be like making more room for on the album. Like, give me yeah, a break. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah but but it, what's funny though, this is like, I love Let It Be. I think Let It Be, I think there's something about it that feels so honest. And watching this documentary only reinforces how honest it feels. But it ain't, it ain't great to have to go from like, get back to 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 go from all of those songs and let it be to one half and 909 yeah like it's, it's just a you're just jumping all over the place with it you know it, it's a little bit of just a bag of songs and if i'm totally honest this is a little bit my own like mental illness but like <laughs> i there were so many times that i had to pull up my phone to be like did this one end up on let it be or abbey road i can't even remember mm mm-hmm. I, I'm ashamed of that, but I also, I, I mean, I, I think I kind of already knew this, but I thought this documentary did a really good job of illustrating just how, how much people overrate the meaning of songs. Yeah. Like people listen to these Beatles album, like, what does this song mean? Who is this song about? And people don't understand that those, they just, these are just words. They don't even necessarily have to have it. They're just words that sound good. Yeah. At one point get back is like about people going from Puerto Rico and stuff. Yeah. It's like a, it. <laughs> an immigration protest song. And Paul, I love how something very humanizing to me about Paul is how he gets like stuck on these words and the sort of like scrambled eggs thing. And so when he just like keeps singing Pakistani. Over and over again, <laughs> yeah. Really- yeah. That- you can tell he's like, I need to find a different word here, but all I'm hearing in my head is Pakistani. Does Pakistani end up changing with Tucson, Arizona? No, because <laughs> he, he ends up, you can tell he lands there with Tucson, Arizona. And, yeah, yeah, that's such a, that's such a release 
when they're working through those lyrics and they're like something Arizona and you're like Tucson Tucson like, <laughs> I know this I know the song Paul it's Tucson British guy yeah, British guy from Liverpool singing about Tucson Arizona yeah I'm disorienting sure to me <laughs> he's spent a lot of time in, in Tucson and that's that is a funny thing to watch this as a document when you sort of know the ending and and to me one of the the interesting things about it is the whole conversation around the rooftop and like, should they do it? Should they not do it? And in hindsight, it's such a cool, good idea. I'm like, how did you ever, how was it ever a consideration not to do it? Yeah, it had to be. I mean, that's, that's ex- the same thing you just said before. We know how it ends. And so mm-hmm. we're, we're drawing that line to end at the end point we know about. Mm-hmm. So put it somewhere else and maybe that's all different, but it, I mean, I think it seems almost like a necessity in part out of how uncertain they were. You're not going to, you're not going to do it on an actual stage somewhere. Like no one knew what the fuck was going to happen. Yeah. And it's iconic and it's surprising and it gets busted by cops. Oh my God. The, the police officers are hilariously polite. They are. Yeah. The sergeant who's like, can I go up? May, may, may I go in, please? Someone's like, yeah, the roof is at capacity. You can go up to the fourth floor. <laughs> I like how he's like admit, admitting to the police officer that like the roof might collapse because so much people yeah, yeah. in gear up there. So it's like, don't, don't go up there. I, I have to say that, and I, pro- I don't know if I admitted it in 1970, but I honestly have not watched the, Let it, the film of Let It Be that came from that. I've not watched it even still. And probably never will now that I've seen that documentary. But see, I kind of want to go back and watch it because I have seen it. And my assumption is that I'm assuming that that Peter Jackson barely used any material that was in that movie. Right. I think I think it would make sense not to. I mean, you got to get some like I mean, you can you can get scenes on that rooftop. They had 12 cameras. I was impressed with that. I loved that like the yeah. setup, everything they did and the foresight to put one in the lobby to capture the police yeah. and stuff. But like, I have to admit that like, I didn't, no one could see them. Some of those people they're interviewing just seemed kind of like essentially neutral on the Beatles in 1969. <laughs> That's insane to me. They're in England in 1969. They're recording there for three weeks. And like the people you're talking to on the street, some know them and like them. Some like them, but seem like they don't know them. Those like man on the street interviews were so bizarre to me. They were super bizarre. Like, I don't know why it really stood out to me. The one guy and you know what it's like when someone shoves a camera in your face, but they're like, oh, do you like this music? It's like, yeah. Do you know who it is? No, it's the Beatles. Oh, yeah. Do you own any Beatles records? Like, yeah, I have. I own some Beatles records. And it's okay. It's 1969. You own Beatles records. John Lennon is singing up there. You don't know what fucking John Lennon sounds like? Like, <laughs> I know. Are you, are you fucking serious? I know. I mean, it could be an example of like, these are new songs, so you don't know the song. And the idea of the Beatles being up there is so out of the realm of possibility that you, you'd have to be told. But I think a little bit of that is like, if if someone was recording, I mean, it's, they're just on the rooftop of the building they've been recording it, right? Like well, you'd guess, know they're yeah. you'd know they're there. I guess that's the part that's hard for me to understand 
and wrap my mind around. And I guess it was just a different sort of celebrity environment in 1969. But my question was like, does not everyone in, in England know that that's like a studio owned by the Beatles? Like so. they're walking in and out of there every day. Have things changed that much in like the four or five years since they stopped touring and were being chased down the streets and into limousines that people, you know, there was like two fans that were camped out there to get a look at Paul. I would have just assumed anyone who passed by there would be like, yeah, that's where the Beatles, like that's where their company is. The Beatles peak was actually really 64 65 right not 68 69 no like it was it was this thing when they just were everything to everyone everywhere totally changing absolutely everything but what i think is odd about that is i think it's pretty understood in the popular consciousness that those later the later five years are why the beatles are that's the world changing that's the music changing part of the beatles you know, I think that the common memory or common sort of understood importance of the Beatles. Sure, there's the mania that happens at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. But I think that the experimentation and the I mean, I just think that basically like look at look at the Rolling Stone top top 500 albums. That's Sergeant Pepper's Revolver. Right. Abbey Road. You know, that's not. I just think in the, in that Beatlemania phase they were just in a lot of ways, just standing apart. And by the time you get to 67, 68, 69, those albums are great, but the Rolling Stones are putting out great albums and there's a, the beach boys are putting out great albums. And there's a lot of other bands that have sort of caught up to them. And so I, I, I'm in my opinion, like those are some of the greatest albums of all time, but I don't know if they're as far distant from like the, the popular culture of rock music as they were when like please please me and with the beatles came out and there's just nothing really that sounded like that yeah that's true um one of the things that i know was not in the the 70s uh get back let it be film is that secret recording of paul and john and that's something that i yeah there were other things that i was not i was like aha uh, this was confirmed to me or I knew about this. I had uh, no idea that it yeah. existed. And that was something that I was totally kind of unprepared for. Do we know how they set that up? Like what the deal was with that? The, I, all I know is what it said in the movie, which was that sounds like Michael Lindsay Hogg, like hid a, a microphone in like a flower pot on the table because they were like, <laughs> we're going to go have a chat or something like that. And they, and that's basically their conversation about George, right? is it worth it to go get George back or do we even want to do this anymore? Like if we want to do this, like let's go get George and like apologize. And if we don't, then that, that could have been it right there. And then there is no, let it be. Yeah. That's a a pretty amazing piece of audio to catch. There's a lot of reminiscing in these sessions that, that, that kind of stood out to me. Paul mentions Hamburg in the cavern about 50 times a lot way more than I would expect I would expect that to be a thing people like put on them and not a thing that was constantly cited by them and yeah a lot and sort of thinking about like is this a normal Beatles session or what do you think that's 
kind of how they always were or do you think that was a reflection on their sort of sand and the hourglass running out and they're in a more nostalgic phase because they see that the end of the road sort of coming up towards them i think it's both of those two things i think it i think it is ending there is an inevitability is what it is for sure and it's a Hey, I'm giving, we're giving ourselves 21 days and we're playing something live at the end of it. So if you're like writing those songs, starting at the beginning of that and need to be able to play it live and you don't even know about the like Mm -hmm. Billy Preston edition, you're inherently gonna, I think maybe, I mean, they do, you dig back into songs that they wrote when they were teenagers, you know, and they play a lot of those songs. Yeah. And they're playing a lot of those songs. So I think it's a combination of like nostalgia and we've all heard about bands we like being like we're getting experimental with a bunch of stuff on this album and then on this album we are playing a thing that just lends itself to a live show like i think that was like essentially i mean paul mccartney's if we're honest like premise going in like what do you right. what they wanted to try and do and They're i and it makes so i guess in that sense it makes sense that hamburg came up a lot but i was surprised by it i felt there i couldn't help but sense like a twinge of sadness anytime that was brought up because it seemed pretty clear. Like I, in my interpretation, I mean, like that was when they were at their happiest. They were just like hanging with their buds, trying to like come up in the world. And like, they cared nothing about music and, and probably like chasing girls. Yeah. It's like, we need to channel that channel that energy. So the, the, the part that there was quite a few funny moments in this, the part that I laughed at hardest is when they're at Twickenham and they're like discussing a, a chord progression and, and Paul is like, I don't know. It's, it's kind of passe. Isn't that kind of thing? And George looks at him and goes, it's just a chord. Exactly. <laughs> it's just chords. Like he's it's like, well, <laughs> he's like, yeah, it's like one of the little like downbeats of get back and they're like, we need to do something different. This is kind of passe. It's like, it's chords. There are many of them. <laughs> just, yeah. The idea that like a G chord or whatever could be like, oh no, we don't do this anymore. I, I just, and George's deadpan. He was so not having Paul's shit in that moment. It could be that I lend too much. Like I give that the Beatles all lenience that they want. Um, And, and I think weirdly, like especially Paul McCartney in some way that he maybe doesn't even deserve in this case, but like, I simultaneously think, yeah, dude, it is just a chord. Like you can think about the timing or some different chord or whatever, but like, what are you suggesting? It's just a chord, you know, like he was, he was so in his head in in those, in that part of the documentary. Exactly. But so at the same time, I like that he's, I like that he's in his head that way. You know, he's trying to do, that's why the Beatles are what the Beatles are is because mm-hmm. these people's heads are that way. You know, they're not copying someone. They are trying to think of a thing that's not derivative. And in that moment, he may, Paul McCartney might not have the words for why that chord is derivative, but in not having the words, George Harrison's going to be like, yo dude, it's a fucking chord. Yeah. And sometimes that's what you need from your bandmate is, is yeah. just to say like, it's just a chord. And I, yeah. I want to make clear, I love Paul McCartney. Like I have, uh, my opinion of him is not any lesson by this. I really feel like this document, like the story here is, is something specifically of like a Greek tragedy where it's like 
all of the greatest strengths of these musicians is also their downfall. I would say that, but it's a, I think it's a gentle downfall. It's not a, it's what I see in this is a bunch of people who maybe in the year after this, it gets a little more, there's more animosity. Cause like you, you referenced like a John Lennon interview style book where he gets pretty disparaging and Paul McCartney gets pretty pissy right after. And there's, there's some. Yeah. Oh no, it gets bad. Yeah. There's some fracturing that comes, but in this moment, it's, it's a tense moment, but I see a lot of love and collaboration and. Yeah. Speaking of that and of, of their like sort of all-star standouts of the documentary is that my feelings were hurt. Cause I was remembering back in, I don't know if it's a song or in that interview from John Lennon remembers that he, he you know, he just goes at everyone with like a, a machine gun, you know, just spewing vitriol in every direction and i think he specifically like accused mal evans and some of those people of sort of like being uh hangers-on and like sort of writing the beatles coattails and you know just watching that documentary like this guy fucking did everything for you man he was basically like your butler slash slave like how are you gonna do that to this they were i loved him like these people bringing out like toast and jam and like, <laughs> and like glasses of wine and the, and smoking cigarettes. Like it was so, it was, they were, he was instrumental in it and extremely positive. It seemed like. Something about the idea that you have a guy that's sort of sitting there and he's just writing down the random, like not even like you're dictating lyrics, but you're just like scatting lyrics and he's just kind of writing them down yeah. for you to prove. That was like, I was like, this has got to be one of the best ways to write <laughs> music. Know, if you have... can get that. I had never considered that before, but now <laughs> I am going to figure out a way to make that happen because our kids, maybe that's the thing we teach our kids. <laughs> Just write down these nonsense words that yeah. daddy's spewing. And uh... this is one no one will care about. But I, as a person who plays in a band with you and our friend Matt, where we pass instruments around, I enjoyed watching them pass instruments around. Absolutely. Watching like the idea that there are song, songs John is playing bass on and stuff like that. And, and that they're talking shit about how shitty he is at bass and that he should turn <laughs> himself down. Really loved it. How many people do you think, like what percentage of the like population thinks that the crowd on the ground could see the Beatles during that mm. in the world? Well, like, because I, I would tell you that lore has people believing that a crowd was on the ground watching the Beatles on a roof. I think probably most people, especially given the context that uh, apparently some people aka my wife uh were under the impression that john lennon was like murdered at that concert <laughs> <laughs> she's gonna my write that w- she's gonna write that fan fiction don't worry about it i'm not looking forward to john's murder and i'm like what <laughs> what are you talking about i that can't imagine going into that scene with that with that feeling <laughs> it definitely she definitely loosened up a lot after i was like no no one's getting <laughs> no one's getting murdered or assassinated my funny thing about the roof thing i loved a lot of the people on the i loved the people on the ground and i loved like they sounded great on the roof i loved like all the logistics and the navigating the the police and everything like Mm -hmm. that 
but it, it was just really funny for me to have like the kind of moment that people talk about this, like by the time you've recorded a song and you're starting to like go on tour with it or whatever, you're sick of the song. You went through the process of writing it. You went through mm-hmm. the arduous process of recording it. You went through the process of rehearsing it. And I didn't do that with any of these songs on let it be, but I watched eight hours of it. And, <laughs> and I can remember being like, all right, I'm on the roof. This is like a huge moment. And I was glad to be there. And I liked watching it play out, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure they played get back twice on the roof. They do. Like, they played, they played multiple takes of, of multiple songs. Yeah. They play, they play, um, don't let me down twice also yeah you're sort of like all right i i got it i'm good i don't i don't need to hear these anymore i mean i I gotta be honest in that i felt like that many times throughout the documentary Mm -hmm. there was so much good stuff and so much minutia to enjoy in it but at some point i was like all right i don't need take 13 of i i i've i've received the the saturation of this peter jackson and i'm i'm ready to like move I think Don't Let Me Down is uh, as much as I absolutely love that song is kind of one of the most guilty ones of that. Like it, cause it, it kind of has its concrete chorus hook moment pretty early. It's so a good getting, song, but it's two chords. It's yeah, literally two chords. Yeah. You're getting that a lot. So. And, and, and so like to, to use the footage to, show the audience how a song is created and how different permeations can like lead to something different. I'm all for that. There was a, a multiple moments throughout the documentary. I was like, this is just, this is not illustrating that point any further yeah. to me. This is just more of the same. I had, I had some moments like that too. I think it's important to be honest about that. There, there were especially like in the second half of, of part two. Oh, that's okay. So that's something also that we should talk about briefly that I found very fascinating was the beat their sort of conversation and reflections on their trip to India and how that sort of played out in that conversation, because my impression was very much. And and I think we've all had this experience with our friends where you had this big, important thing or experience happen together together. And your friend or the person you experienced with it, did, it was not a big, important thing to them. Mm-hmm. And that, that was sort of like Paul being like, yeah, we did that. That was a thing that we did. And just the look on George and John's face was very much like, I, I can't believe you're sort of simplifying this so much. Yeah. Meanwhile, George has two guys meditating like outside <laughs> the circle of the band playing. <laughs> right. And, and, and and what's the John song? What which is it? Road to Marrakesh. What does that turn into? Uh-huh. That turns into Jealous Guy, I think. That's right, and that's so. That's that's one of the ones that becomes uh, Plastic Ono, right? Yeah, yeah. And again, also just goes to show, like, don't become overly obsessed with what a song is about, um, <laughs> because it can morph into something else. But I thought that whole sort of conversation was very interesting and again just illustrative of the way that they're sort of growing apart and they're they're even growing apart while they're having the same experiences yeah like it's not just a matter of like well you hang out with these friends and i hang out with those friends like even even being in the same place and experiencing something as big and you know culturally relevant as that they still came you know took different things out of it on one hand you can hear that in white album what they do after like you it's not 
it's kind of what we we're saying before, right? Like it's mm-hmm. not totally unfounded. Like it kind of lines up with who we think they are, but it lines up with way more precision now that you see that show. And so I, I want to, I, I know this is <laughs> turning into a super long podcast, but I, I want I feel like we haven't really talked about John yet. I don't know that there was anything super revelatory about John in this. I think it was really heightening the image that I already had of him, but the, the, my sort of takeaway from it is that he is one of these archetype people that are so charismatic and fun and lovely when they're in a good mood. Yeah. And then, and so that you just constantly want to get to that place with them. Right. So you want them to be, and, and, and that was just my impression of him in this documentary is, and obviously, I mean, it was pretty obvious to me at, at the beginning of it, that his heroin issues were very, you could just tell he was super strung out before they like got to the other studio. But I don't know. I, I, I feel like that's this very specific type of person. And, and that's just who John was, was he was this person that everyone wanted to be around. Um, and if he wanted to, he could, he would take you down a peg in a second. I think it's easy to think of him as like a kind of shocking person or an asshole, Mm -hmm. but then that's not who he is in this. He's extremely, they love him and he Mm -hmm. is kind to them, except for the moments where he decides he wants to be kind of cutting, but you're totally right that like when that guy's in a good mood, like there's an art to like sort of saying things on a microphone between songs and that's like, that guy's all over that. Like yeah. he's, you, you get like the, I dig a pygmy kind of like cuts that come out of like, like him just mm-hmm. shouting shit, like between, mm-hmm. or like making things up on a microphone. And what you realize watching that is he's just constantly doing that. And it's also, but like so many, I think a lot of those things turned into like these great little spices yeah. in those other songs, actually. Like it's sometimes it's annoying or sometimes it's just to be funny or obnoxious. And then other times it's like, whoa, actually like that's, he's just like throwing them out there. Yeah. I think I, I think I found them all enjoyable, but it's just cause I'm like allowing Joe oh, yeah. Lennon to do whatever he wants to do. Uh, make it anybody else. And I might be annoyed with them. The you know. scene where Paul comes in to Twickenham and like George has left the band and John hasn't showed up and he has that look on his face that all of us have had at some point in our life where you're like trying to project to everyone that you're like, I'm that's totally cool, whatever. Like, I don't yeah. care if they show up, but he's just like so <laughs> distraught and sort of like, what does this mean? What's about to happen? Like you, you I, I couldn't believe the footage that they had gotten because there were so many moments like that in this where you don't even need them to say anything. It's all, it's written all over their faces. And that's not, that's something that was unexpected to me is you expect these guys to be sort of stone cold professional assassins and yeah, yeah. They're, they're very emotional. Yeah. They're emotional and reacting to what's happening too. I die. Like in addition to that, I like that you get like, you get the, you get the calendar like getting X'd out each day, but you don't, get the time until someone says the time until mm-hmm. someone says it's lunch until someone says I'm meeting Alan Klein at one 30 or whatever. Like, and so the, who gets there early, who's not there at the end of the day, like who is and isn't there on a given day. You just kind of get to kind of feel that out and then also feel out how, how the other people feel about it, you know? 
or why yeah. like why in this moment nobody's around but just george and ringo are goofing around on on, on octopus's garden or whatever like it's just so much of that it's just like it's like hanging out for 21 days it's cool. i mean that is hard to imagine like know. especially in this day and age of like working from home and like virtual meet like even my bestest of best friends man i don't i i couldn't go spend a month straight with you guys or eight hours a day like we would have been broken up in the first week that's what i mean by like these guys have been through all this stuff for all that time and sure this is the end of them and sure that seem and, and that's actually the reason it seems inevitable is because they're not sure the like personality differences and and differences of opinion and stuff are there but you you can see respect for each other at all times on mm-hmm. all fronts from all four absolutely and it's not like George goes and starts a band with Eric Clapton and plays with Eric Clapton for 10 years. No, I had, I had, I think this, like we can kind of wind it out with this, but I had an interesting conversation afterward, or this was like right before I watched part three, I was talking about watching this documentary with a friend and they talked about putting on, they threw on like a classic rock uh, shuffle station or whatever and after I played a couple songs, I played a Beatles song and they were like, no, I don't, I don't want to hear the Beatles right now. Like they, it's not a person who dislikes the Beatles, mm. but they're like, no, like I was putting on uh, Led Zeppelin and Dire Straits and Pink Floyd and whatever. And then at the same time, I have like, my wife has like a, a deep love for like oldies from like the fifties the and earlier. And, and so does my dad. And so do a lot of people I know. And like a thought I kind of had is like, you can tell me if this, what parts of this seems accurate or what seems inaccurate, but that the Beatles kind of almost exist as the thing between those two things. Like they are, I think they are not, I agree that they're not that classic rock station. They are not what I would want to click if I clicked shuffle classic rock, but they are also not going to give me what I need if with the Beatles or if I'm clicking, they're not going to give me what I want if I'm like just trying to shuffle like Otis Redding songs and Elvis Presley and stuff. And it's like, feels like they on their own for one decade are like the transition between the two things that seem overstated or. I don't think it seems overstated. And I don't think it's overstated to just sort of say like the Beatles are a genre unto themselves. I could not imagine making as, as someone who is a, a degenerate playlist maker could not imagine putting a Beatles song on a playlist with other people's music, just period. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, I could hear it on the radio or something like that, but no, I, I think that's, I think that's interesting. I think that's true. They are their own thing and they are their own thing that is different at the beginning than it is at the end. And yet simultaneously the Beatles like revolutionary the whole entire time. I'm so glad that this document exists. I, I cannot, as, as, much of a slog as it was at, at certain points, I can definitely see myself watching this again. If, if if you if I'm ever in the need for like creative spark or something, there there's a lot to be inspired by in this documentary. Totally. There's gonna be like some clips we see, and then I a hundred percent know that I will rewatch it again. The 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 two paths I have ahead of me or whether I watch it again in 10 years or whether I watch it again at Christmas when I see my family, which could easily happen. <laughs> I hope they watch it beforehand so, I, so that I don't do that. But 
even though it was eight hours it whetted my appetite and so i think i'm definitely going to circle back and go watch those anthology uh movies i haven't seen in, in quite a long time yeah that's that's a exciting idea because that like the idea that basically 99.5 percent of the documentary is just sort of putting cameras on them doing their thing the first half percent is a recap of everything they do and like there's something about them you know i mean that that's basically like a digest recap of what what we talked about on this podcast like watching them change every year for Mm -hmm. for 10 years but it's crazy it's it's just like you just like you just want you want to get into all that stuff too I knew I knew watching that opening sort of montage that I that that made me I was like I'm gonna watch anthology after this. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Totally. As much as I'm ready to go deep dive all in on on Let It Be, like I I, I want I want some deep dive on that other stuff too, because it's also interesting. Well, nice. We gave people the podcast version. Eight hours uh, wasn't enough for you. If the documentary was you sitting around and hanging out with the Beatles for eight hours. This is you sitting around hanging out with two guys watching the documentary for two hours. Yes, exactly. Hopefully while you're like doing some chores or like going for a run or something like that. Uh, Rolling Stones on tour 2022. Can we, can we still cue ourselves out to Rolling Stones? Well, baby, 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 you're out of What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.